In January, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences dedicated an entire issue to the global decline of insects. Dozens of scientists concluded that climate change, habitat loss, pesticides, and pollution were sending many insect species on a downward spiral. It's bad enough that some scientists and journalists are calling it the insect apocalypse. The phrase gained traction in 2017 after a group of European scientists published a paper highlighting dramatic insect declines in Germany. They analyzed data from an entomological society in Germany that had been trapping insects for decades. Shockingly, the total weight of insects trapped fell by three quarters over the course of 27 years. That result inspired a wave of gloomy headlines about the future of insects, but also renewed interest in monitoring their status. Articles in the recent PNAS issue suggest that the number of insects in many areas is declining by about 1% or 2% each year. Over a few decades, that'll add up to a huge impact. However, ballpark estimates like this may not provide a full picture. It's rare to get data from long-term monitoring projects, and many of these focus on a few conspicuous groups like butterflies, moths, and bees, rather than sampling more comprehensively across taxa. These kinds of studies are also mostly conducted in Europe and the United States, even though most insects live in the tropics. In other words, it may be premature to declare that the insect apocalypse is actually upon us. But even so, it's clear that we need to take action to reverse the trends. Insects provide an enormous set of services to humans, and without them, we'd be in big trouble. One obvious and important service is pollination. Between 8 and 10% of all the food we eat depends on pollinators, and wild insects do most of the work. Today's guest, Dave Goulson, says that fact alone should be enough to make people care about global insect declines. There is this kind of common misconception out there that the honeybee pollinates all of our crops, and that's, you know, we don't need any other pollinators at all, which is absolute rubbish. In the UK, there was a, a, an analysis done of this, and it concluded that honeybees contribute a maximum of 30% of crop pollination. So, you know, there's a, the, the bulk is being done by these wild insects that nobody looks after at all, that we just assume are going to turn up. And, and obviously, the worrying thing is that they're not anymore. Dave is a biologist at the University of Sussex who studies bumblebees and the sustainable management of pollinators. He was a co-author of the study of the German insect declines in 2017 and is an outspoken advocate for insect conservation. Recently, his lab has been investigating the impacts of pesticides on bumblebees in particular. On this episode, we talk with Dave about the decline in wild bee populations, efforts to monitor wild bees, key factors contributing to their declines, and what those declines mean for us. At the end of the show, we'll discuss how our food system can be made more pollinator-friendly and what individuals like you can do to prevent insect declines. Dave argues that with some major changes, it is possible to feed our growing population and preserve pollinators. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Well, um, Dave, it's just fantastic to get you on the show. Um, we've been talking about insect declines for some time and um, wanting to get you on the show to talk about this, so I'm glad we finally get a chance. Um, and I want to I want to just jump right in uh, with both feet and ask how how bad is it? Um, you've you focus particularly on bees around the world, and you've documented declines in several groups, including bumblebees. Um, but let's so so let's just start with bees. Uh, how how bad is it? Yeah, so uh, bad. I mean, I, I think there's no doubt at all that 
wild bees, but not honeybees, and it's important to make that distinction. Um, wild bees have declined a lot. Not every species, some are clearly much tougher than others uh, for reasons we don't fully understand. Um, and, and I have to kind of throw in the caveat that actually the majority of bee species are not really monitored. Um, but the ones that we are monitoring, um, or that which we have some kind of data for, predominantly show declines. Um, we've got better data for bumblebees than anything else. We've got better data for Europe and North America than for any other region. Um, but certainly the, the most obvious sign of decline is we've seen is really massive range contractions in quite a few species. Um, uh, so, you know, in the UK, um, we've lost two species in, in the 20th century um, and quite a few others that used to be common bees. Um, and now to find one, you've got to drive hundreds of miles. You've got to go to one of, one of the last kind of little populations that's clinging on in a nature reserve somewhere. Um, one species has gone extinct. A bumblebee has gone extinct uh, in North America, Franklin's bumblebee. So that's obviously the the sort of end point of range contractions. And thankfully, most haven't got there yet, but there are quite a few heading that way. The rusty patch bumblebee, uh, another North American species, has, has also undergone these really spectacular range contractions. And that used to be a very common insect across the whole of the eastern side of North America. And now, you know, it's down to a a handful of individuals almost. It's uh... Dave, can we circle back to something you said a minute ago to try to get you know, be as explicit as possible about the scope of the problem. How many bees are there in the world? How many species of bees are there? And then, I mean, I want to I want to hear the answer to that question in route to who is it that we're monitoring, and you know, what fraction of total bees are we attending to in any detail? So there are twenty thousand species of bee in in the world, and um, the, the sad truth is we haven't got a clue what's happening with most of them. Um, there, is, there is no long-term monitoring scheme in place for, and this is, this is actually, you could have made the same statements about insects generally. You know, there are 1.1-ish million named species of insect. And for the very large majority, we haven't got any data at all on, on any measure of their population change or range change or anything else really. Somebody um, just described them at some point, and that's it. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, there's a, <laughs> they have a name. Yeah, yeah. You've got a specimen, a type specimen in a museum somewhere. And we know where it was caught, and the, you mm -hmm. know there may be a few Check. other sporadic records. <laughs> that's it. You know, so um, uh, it's pretty uh, uh, kind of worrying in a sense that, and of course we we also know that there are lots of species we haven't even described. So obviously we don't know what's happening with them because we haven't haven't even got to the point of having one on don't a pin. Don't even know what they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and so, so how many do you estimate that there are altogether? Ah, uh, no, don't ask me to. Uh, so uh, okay, okay. Other, <laughs> and it's not my area, but but I mean, other people have tried to extrapolate how many insects there might be in the world, um, and. You know, the, the, the most conservative estimates suggest maybe two or three million and the top end is maybe 10 million. But, you know, there's a pretty, pretty big confidence intervals. You yeah, know, yeah, we, yeah. we don't know. Fair enough. Um, suffice to say, there's an awful lot. And for most of them, we haven't got a clue. I mean, so. Um, and also the, the, the geographic, um, the, the, the geographic distribution of our knowledge about insects 
is extremely biased and patchy. Um, so basically, we know quite a lot about um, European and North American insects, um, I, relatively speaking, and almost nothing at all for all of the presumably extraordinary diversity of insects living in South America, Africa, and Asia, and pretty much Australia too. Um, just no long-term monitoring of any species. Um, so, you know, it's very hard to make any sensible, accurate, reliable statements about what's happening to insects globally, given that the place where the, the most insects live, we, we, we just don't know. You, you can guess, you know, I mean, you've only got to see an aerial photograph of oil palm plantations stretching across Indonesia, where it used to be rainforest, to think, well, it's a pretty good, seems pretty likely there are fewer insects there now than there used to be, but nobody's counting, sadly. Yeah. Why, why don't we know those things? Is it, you know, anytime insects come up to especially non-biologists, they're too icky and too gross and creepy crawly. I mean, is it is it sort of the lack of charisma for most of them, say, to birds, the passion that, you know, so many people to have to go and, and twitch and count their, their birds? Or is it just the, the difficulty and the cost of, doing it accurately. It, it, I think it's all of those things. I mean, there are so many of them that, that it's, it's really difficult to, to, to set up a monitoring scheme for So people, what you can do is you can set up a monitoring scheme for one of the, the more easily identified groups, um, which, uh, and it has to be a group that isn't, doesn't have too many species, but the classic is of course, butterflies. We, we do a lot of monitoring of butterflies in North America and Europe, um, because they're, they're big, they're colorful, people kind of like them, they're relatively easy to identify. Um, and, and so it's possible to get, you know, citizen scientists out there walking transects, counting butterflies. Um, and you can just about do that with bumblebees. We've got a scheme running now in the UK for bumblebees. Um, and maybe if, you, if you're really lucky, you might do it on a limited scale with one or two other insect groups, dragonflies maybe, or hoverflies possibly at a push. But, but then you know, you're still only really scratching the surface of, of you know, insect abundance. There are so few people that can identify most, in, you know, you look at, say, parasitoid wasps, which is you know, an enormously diverse group. There's only a handful of people in the world that can identify them. And then you've got to kill them and get them under a microscope and, you know, count the hairs on their hind leg or whatever it might be. So it, it, it's just not really the logistics of monitoring insects in any kind of detailed way uh, are really daunting. Plus, of course, you know, they, don't, they just don't have the, the number of people interested in them that perhaps bigger, more charismatic creatures do. Well, maybe we, we do need to turn to sort of the, the negative side of, of the conversation and, and start to touch some of the factors that are driving um, bee declines. And there's a, there's a big list of them, so we probably don't have time today, and maybe we'll come too depressed to make it through the conversation. Um, but could we start with habitat loss? I think that's one of the more prominent ones. So what sorts of habitat, losing those sorts of habitat is most negative for bee populations? Yeah. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, bees need, they need flowers uh, primarily and, and, and somewhere to nest. Um, and 
I think most people would agree that probably the availability of flowers is is the is the the one that's more commonly limiting of those two things. Um, and just the the modern landscape tends to have rather few flowers in. If if you look at a a farmed landscape compared to what it used to, um, or compared to kind of natural or semi-natural habitats. Um, and in, certainly in a European context, it's slightly different in North America, but in um, in Europe, we used to have huge tracts of, of um, species-rich grasslands, um, uh, particularly hay meadows, uh, and also chalk downland, which are, uh, well, usually these days regarded as as um, sort of a, a man-made habitat, a, a semi-natural habitat created by grazing and by hay cutting, practices that went on for you know, hundreds or thousands of years. But they maintained this really species rich habitat with lots of really high densities and diversity of flowers. And they're fantastic places for insects of, of all types. Um, so just in the UK, which is a pretty small country, um, we used to have about 7 million hectares of species rich grassland at the up to about 1920. Um, and then in the next 70 years, we destroyed 97% of that habitat. Um, which, you know, from a, and, and replaced it with either with arable crops, which tend, you know, either to have no flowers unless they happen to be a flowering crop. And then there's just a, a glut of flowers for two weeks and then it's gone again. Um, or the other the other habitat, which is which is kind of often replaced these species rich grasslands is improved pasture, as it's known in farming terms, which is usually just a, a, a ryegrass um, uh, monoculture of you know bright green pasture um, good if you're trying to feed cows good for a cow bad for bees yeah exactly um, mm. so in, certainly you know looking at Britain if you the, most of the species of, of bee that have declined used to be found in these flower rich grassland areas so, so are these insect declines motivating anybody to try to get back to more diverse you know grasslands and supportive agriculture so sort of dial back the clock somehow in terms of species diversity? Yeah, this, I mean, there are interesting things happening. Uh, I mean, for, for a long time now, there have been moves to, you know, there are subsidies available to farmers in Europe, for example, to put in flower strips, um, to, to reduce cutting of hedgerows. And it, it, they can also get subsidies to actually re replant or recreate from scratch flower-rich grasslands. Um, but you don't see that much of it. Um, the, you know, the, the many farmers haven't really engaged with it. The funding isn't really adequate. It's, 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 it's not really been a game changer, um, because well, certainly so in the UK, we started funding these agri-environment schemes 25 years ago, at least. Um, and yet all the evidence we have is that insects are still declining, right, sadly. Right. Well, still probably in most people's economic interest to not, not bother with that stuff. Right. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, some of the, some of the schemes are fairly well funded. I mean, it, you know, it's, there's some of them that pay about 500 pounds a hectare for the, the top end, um, every year. Um, so that's the kind of restoring a species rich grassland. But the problem is that, that, or one of the problems I think is that it's, it's very unfamiliar territory to farmers. You know, they've become used to growing crops. They know how to grow crops. They don't know how to 
restore a, a species-rich grassland and how they don't know what it should look like. They, you know, they can't. They've been gone too long for the farmers. To, it was their grandparents yeah, right, that right. might have remembered what they looked Shifting like. Shifting baselines for them too, right? Yeah, uh, and there's yeah, probably they don't have a, the equipment. Yeah, and there's probably a social it's, effect also of you know if you have too many weeds growing on the side of your field, right? Then it doesn't it doesn't look right. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. I there is a sort of farmer tidiness, just just as there is with gardens. Actually, there's a, there's a whole interesting world of, of conversation to be had there. But uh, um, but yeah, so so you know, so far, I, although there's you know, governments have created national pollinator strategies and there's all this talk about what we might do to to kind of um you know in the way of nature friendly farming and this kind of thing but um but the reality is it hasn't delivered much yet um i think we need a real kind of you know step change in in how much of that kind of thing we're doing if we're really going to make any difference it feels a bit like you know a drop in the ocean at the moment uh, so, you know, in terms of habitat loss, it's really, it's habitat change. It's loss in the sense that the species we're trying to conserve no longer have what they would prefer or need. But um, do we know anything about urbanization effects? I mean, the, the, for certain bee species in particular, I'm interested to know if there's a, a bee equivalent of a, a cockroach or, you know, the black rat or something like that. Are there species that are thriving and are they thriving because of urbanization? Uh, yeah, I mean, not quite a d direct analogies to rats, perhaps, but um, <laughs> you won't go that there far. Are, there, no, I mean, <laughs> not that so far. <laughs> there, there, there are certainly. Um, so we did some work about oh, fifteen years ago now, um, where well, two things we did. One was we we got young bumblebee nests and we put them in different habitats to see how they did. And one of those habitats was uh, was urban areas. And then we had various different, we had farms, conventional farms and farms with extra flowers and this kind of thing. And the, and the ones that did best of all were the ones in the gardens, uh, much better than any, even the farms with extra flowers were nowhere near as good as the gardens. Um, and we've also done stuff looking at using genetic markers to fingerprint uh, bee workers and then count how many sisterhoods there were in different areas as a measure of how many wild colonies there are um, uh, and again you know the the estimates of nest densities are much higher in urban areas um, sometimes quite extraordinarily high so certainly the but only for common species so there seem to be a few species of bumblebee that are really adaptable and uh, you know this is the same with it most groups birds other groups of insects, whatever, there seem to be a few really robust species that can cope with whatever we throw at them. And then lots of others that, that quickly expire, you know, they can't cope at all. But the adaptable ones seem to have adopted gardens as, as pretty good habitat. Um, and obviously they do tend to have quite high densities of flowers. It's, you know, it's very patchy from one garden to the next, but if you're a bee and you can happily fly over a few fences, there's always a garden somewhere in an urban area with flowers. Um, so compared to farmland, um, urban areas are not bad for adaptable species that can cope with, you know, the, the sort of challenges of urban areas. I and mean, there must be lots of pollution. There's, you know, probably traffic collisions to cope yeah, with. As they other other downsides, but there are some gardens. So. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a quick break to bring you a message from our sponsors. Support for this episode comes from Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University. Founded in 1892, Hopkins Marine Station, located 90 miles south of Stanford's main campus on the Monterey Bay, is the oldest marine laboratory on America's west coast. 
Hopkins scientists work both locally and at field sites around the world, and their research addresses fundamental questions at every level of marine biology, from genes to ecosystems. For example, a team from Hopkins recently attached cameras to bluefin tuna to understand how they move through their environments. Another team is investigating how to restore tropical reefs using heat-resistant strains of coral. Find out more about research and educational opportunities, visit hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. That's hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. The Zoological Lighting Institute funds the sciences of light and life for the arts, for animal welfare, and for wildlife conservation. Recognizing that natural light is a central aspect of animal health and ecological function, the Zoological Lighting Institute promotes understanding by including scientific and artistic perspectives in conversations about light so that proper and sustainable approaches to care and development can be taken by communities around the globe. ZLI understands that natural light is a key element of wildlife habitat. Artificial light at night and other modifications to the luminous environment, such as glass and asphalt, have radical implications for the physiology, sensory ecology, and integrative biology of animals and their role within ecosystems. ZLI promotes scientific research to improve understanding as to what artificial changes mean for animals and the human communities that depend on them. Find out how you might support ZLI's work at zli.org by participating in, sponsoring, or learning through its programs today. Um, let's, let's turn to a, a different cause of declines. Uh, I want to talk about parasites and diseases just for a few minutes. Um, and, and this is particularly interesting to me in, in the context of honeybees interacting with wild bees and uh, thinking about diseases going both both ways. And I think, you know, in, in the news media, you hear a lot about honeybee diseases, and they've accumulated lots of bad things over the last few decades. But just, just sort of give us a state of disease ecology among bees generally and how important those routes are back and forth. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting area, and it's, it, there's been a lot of published research in recent years, but, but still we're just scratching the surface really um, because we know so little about the diseases of wild insects. Um, almost all bee disease research until the last 10 or 15 years was on honeybees. And in fact, it, almost all insect disease research was on honeybees. Um, so, and we know honeybees suffer from a, you know, quite a range of parasites and pathogens, viruses and fungi and bacteria and all sorts. Um, some of which are specific to honeybees, and but many of them seem to be generalist um, uh, bee diseases or sometimes insect diseases. So, um, for example, deformed wing virus, which is very common in honeybees, um, will happily infect wild bees um, and there are records of it turning up in in non-bees wasps and even if i recall correctly hoverflies um, so these are just kind of insect diseases you know we, we we think of them as honeybee diseases just because that's where they were discovered but actually honeybee might may not be the main host at all sometimes and are they more widespread given you know people moving honeybee colonies around the landscape for for pollination services so so is that spreading this all over the place yeah so that's the that's the problem you know of course be uh, these diseases are kind of natural on the whole you know and the, uh, things like the varroa mite it's it's a, it's a you know it's as much right to to live on this planet as we have as far as i'm concerned but the trouble is we've messed things up by shifting them around and you know people started moving honeybees around the world hundreds of years ago um before you know we even knew there was such a thing as a bacteria or a virus so obviously they didn't check those colonies to make sure they were clean 
And this has continued even up to the present day that we're still pretty lax with bee hygiene. So, so honeybees get moved all over the world and we've accidentally spread um, a whole range of, of their diseases with them and sometimes with, with serious consequences. So, um, uh, for example, there's a thing called Nasima serrani, which is um, uh, it's, it's a, a, a microsporidian parasite uh, that originated in the Asian honeybee, which is a different species of honeybee naturally found in Asia. Um, but it's, it's spread around the world, probably with honeybees that were taken to Asia and then became infected and then have been shipped elsewhere. We're not entirely sure. Um, but that will happily jump from honeybees into bumblebees. And it's, it's been detected at fairly high frequency in wild bumblebees in Europe. Um, we don't know exactly when it got here. We don't really have much clue how many bees it's killing. But in the lab, it, 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 it can be fatal. Um, so it's kind of concerning that this, you know, Asian gut parasite is, is, is somehow got itself from Asian honeybees in China to, to British bumblebees flying around here, you know. So, so in terms of, of mechanisms for cutting down on the spread of diseases, um, you know, it seems like the obvious thing is to, to not move bees around nearly as much. Uh, so, so are there programs to try to cut down on these movements? Do you, do you favor much stricter restrictions on what, you know, where people can take their colonies? I, so one thing we haven't mentioned actually is the, the, which has got to be in there because it's, it's a really interesting new-ish angle on this is that we've also started commercially rearing and shipping bumblebees around the world, mm, mm-hmm. um, which has exacerbated the problems we'd already created by shipping honeybees around the world. And, and that's because they're better and, pollinators and for some things? They're, they're really good at pollinating um, tomatoes is, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the big product because that needs buzz pollinating and honeybees are useless at buzz pollinating so they don't even visit tomato flowers. Um, uh, other solanaceae also, and, and there's other plants too, but tomatoes is the big one. So it's usually for glasshouse use. But um, the bumblebees, someone in uh, the, the Netherlands, um, actually a, a guy who was a vet, strangely, but he, he worked out how to breed bumblebees in the late 80s and set up a little factory selling them. And it quickly became a global business with huge factories churning out literally millions of bumblebee nests. And shipping them around the world but the, the the bumblebees are reared on pollen collected by honeybee keepers who make money by sticking pollen traps on their honeybee hives and then supplying the pollen to the bumblebee factories so you've got this horrible horribly efficient mechanism for taking honeybee diseases and giving them to bumblebees and then shipping bumblebees all over the world and there's really no regulation of that trade at all um, so we know that you know they're shipped from Europe to to the they've been taken to the Americas. Um, is there any prospect for regulation, or is it just no way? It's not going to happen. It, not in the. It doesn't seem likely. It would. It really needs international agreement. You know, many. So the U.S., for example, and, and Canada no longer allow importation of non-native bees. So you can't buy a a, a European bumblebee and a nest and take it to to the to the states anymore but the the factories will sell them to anyone that'll buy them as far as i can tell they don't seem to have any scruples whatsoever so we know for example they were they they sold european bumblebees to chile um in 1998 and now there's a there's an invasion of south america by european bumblebees carrying european bee diseases 
um, which have had a really disastrous effect on um, there's a, there's a beautiful um, uh, the, the only bumblebee native to the bottom half of South America is the world's biggest bumblebee, Bombus dalbomii, a giant ginger thing. It looks like a flying mouse, I'm told. I've never had the pleasure of seeing one. Um, and it used to be really common in Chile and Argentina, but it's it's uh, teetering on the edge of extinction because it's just been it, it's um, been wiped out by the seemingly by the diseases being carried by these European bumblebees. Um, so it's really tragic and, and, you know, entirely predictable. I mean, you know, 1998 wasn't that long ago. Uh, we surely knew better than to just in, introduce a new species to a new continent without even thinking to check its health. It's just ridiculous. And it, it could happen again tomorrow, you know, because nobody's pre- there's no law preventing it. Yeah. Basically. You know, Dave, a minute ago, you raised a, a really interesting point and maybe to turn to the pesticide issue that the effects of these diseases may be exacerbated when the parasites and viruses, whatever it might be, are showing up in contexts where things like neonicotinoids are also being used. What do, how much do we worry about? What do we know about pesticides and bumblebees and honeybees? Yeah, I, I mean, I, there's really clear evidence. It, it's funny. I mean, this is hugely controversial. It's, it's, the, it's the one area of kind of bee science where, where you, there's massive controversy um because of course there's a lot of money at stake um for i for me i think it's 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 completely clear and obvious that current pesticide use is contributing to bee declines i think there's an overwhelming body of evidence um some pesticides are worse than others neonicotinoids undoubtedly among the more harmful ones but but we shouldn't get completely focused on neonicotinoids you know there are there are 500 different pesticides used in Europe, and I think nearly twice that many used in North America. Um, Not surprising. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, many of them are, are probably harmful to bees, in de- depending on the circumstances. Um, but, you know, the, the, the problem is, of course, there's a strong vested interest in disputing this. Um, and there are, you know, industry itself. But it's, it's very similar to, the t- to what happened with tobacco in the 20th century. I think it's the best way I can explain it. Confuse and deny. Uh, exactly. Kind of smoke and mirrors, publish counterclaims, you know, get your own scientists to, to, to dispute every piece of evidence that suggests pesticides do harm bees, uh, to produce counter evidence, to make it seem like there's, there's a controversy when actually there isn't really a controversy. Um, which makes it really easy for politicians to, to avoid doing anything because they can say, oh, well, you know, we need a bit more research. You know, the scientists can't agree. Um, yeah. So it's frustrating. Um, and it's really I mean, it's also really interesting to see to how it plays out, you know, that um, the different parts of the world can look at the same body of evidence and come to quite different conclusions. Uh, seemingly, you know, the European Union put a lot of, had a, a, a team of scientists um, basically investigate neonicotinoids and uh, they spent about a year doing it and wrote this enormous report which basically concluded that, that neonicotinoids pose an unacceptable risk to bees was how they put it. Um, and so the European Union banned them or banned most of them. Um, uh, but, you know, the rest of the world disagrees seemingly um you know in 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 the united states they're still obviously widely used and uh, um no signs at all of any serious restrictions on their use um 
And yet, you know, you guys can see the same academic studies that we can see. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, different conclusions are yeah, drawn. But well, it... Different vested interests too, right? Uh, just, I want to stick on pesticides just for another minute and ask, uh, I, I was really amazed by something you said in this 2015 Science Express paper of yours about um, just the total number of pesticides that have been detected in, in honey and in honeybee colonies. It was like, you know, more, more than 100, I think. And, and that raises this issue of, uh, you know, pe people do studies, but they often do studies on single compounds, right? But the bees often are exposed to cocktails of these things that may have interactive effects. Is there anybody who's grappling with this interactive effect problem? Uh, we've tried, and I'm sure there are others trying. It's, it's just one of those things that's really intractable experimentally, you know, because there are so many combinations of, of chemicals yeah, your experiment and concentrations. Blows up to, you know, some giant yeah, hypervolume, yeah. right? Away. <laughs> you, you, can, you can just about cope with two. But, you know, as you say, the reality is you look in the honey or pollen in a, in a bee nest and, you know, commonly find 10, 15, 20 different pesticides. Um, and, and, you know, where do you, and, and every nest has a different combination depending on where it's been, you know, where they've been foraging. Um, so it, it's a nightmare. Um, uh, and we, we also, um, you know, the, the regulatory process is, is fundamentally flawed for this same reason, because it, it studies one compound at a time. Um, you know, if you bring a new compound and you want to get it licensed to sell to farmers, yeah, you have to show that that particular product doesn't kill a honeybee in a, in a lab test. Um, but you obviously don't expose it. You know, that's a really healthy. But what about that one with the other hundred pesticides that they're exposed to, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and the scale of exposure is really staggering. I mean, the, the uh, um, more recently than, than that, we after we published that 2015 paper, there was a, a report that came out of um, a Swiss research group where they, they did, it was really interesting kind of bit of sort of citizen science approach. They, uh, they, they put out a call for people who were going on holiday to bring them back a honey sample from wherever they were going in the world. And they analyzed them. They, they, were only, they only looked for neonicotinoids. Um, they didn't look for any other pesticides. Um, but 75% of samples from all over the world contained detectable levels of at least one and sometimes up to five different neonicotinoids in a single sample. Um, and, you know, this included islands in the middle of the Pacific, you know, really remote corners of the world where you think, God, you know, even even there, these poor bees are being. And then given that these are neurotoxins that are really phenomenally toxic um, and often the concentrations being found in honey were higher than concentrations that are known to, to have sometimes lethal, not let alone sublethal effects on bees then, you know, we shouldn't really be surprised that insects have problems, really. Because I mean, I guess the important point is here that if honeybees are being exposed, it means that all pollen flower visiting insects are being exposed. So and that's that's tens of thousands of species. We, we haven't talked too much yet about the consequences of declines in bees for the rest of the world. And maybe let's just turn now to that for a few minutes um, and start with uh, what we might term the pollination crisis, right? So obviously bees are important for pollinating lots of crops in the world. They're also super important for pollinating lots of wild plants. Um, so so what, are, what are the effects of these observed declines on, on pollination services? 
so there is there there's clear evidence that some crops some of the time are having their yields reduced because there aren't enough pollinators um there are a few well one really famous example which is often cited of um in southwest china where they now commonly um, hand pollinate apples and pears um there are huge areas of apple and pear orchards there um you said they're hand pollinating uh, because there's not enough they, pollinators there's not enough pollinators none of wild pollinators to, to do the job hmm. um and that i've i've seen it in india as well um uh, um where in the north in northeastern india near calcutta where they the farmers are now hand pollinating squash plants because they they're just not getting pollinated unless they do it themselves um and there's, there's, there's been some big scale um studies looking at crop yields around the world and comparing insect and wind pollinated crops and how yields have changed over time and there's there's pretty pretty good evidence that we are you know on the edge of of a, a crisis where yields are going to be depressed more and more because there aren't enough pollinators to go around um so you know clearly that's a worry because three three roughly three quarters of all the crops that people grow need pollination to varying degrees um uh you know some can produce quite a lot of yield without any pollination some produce nothing so there's a whole spectrum there um, uh, and it only so although it's three quarters of the crops by species it those crops only produce about a third of our food by weight because the the wind pollinated grasses make up the bulk of our diet um, and if you then take into account the fact that some of those insect pollinated crops will actually produce a reasonable yield without pollination actually it's it's something like 10 or 8 to 10 percent of our food globally is dependent on pollinators but that's still quite a lot of food and it's it's the healthiest chunk of our diet um you know so 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 right now globally if you look at diets and what in human nutrition in relation to what we grow we grow way more cereal and oil than we need to feed everybody. Um, but we don't grow enough fruit and veg to give everyone a healthy diet. So even if it was completely fairly distributed, there, isn't, there aren't enough fruits and veg for everybody. So if you were to take away... Sort of junk, junk food on a global scale here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, our diets are dominated by processed starchy foods, you know, pasta and bread and cake and biscuits and pies and pastries and so on it's all because it's all come from comes from cereals basically and we've got loads of those um but we don't have enough of you know apples and tomatoes and so on which are the things that need the insects yeah yeah, yeah. so so in terms of um pollination by honeybees versus wild bees you, you guys are, and others have evidence that wild insects and wild bees in particular are are particularly important right yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it varies crop by crop, um, and it's, so it's hard to generalise. Um, but there is this kind of common misconception out there that the honeybee pollinates all of our crops, and we, that's you know we don't need any other pollinators at all, which is absolute rubbish. Um, uh, so in the UK, there was a, a, an analysis done of this, and it concluded that honeybees contribute a maximum of thirty percent of crop pollination. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. My, my intuition was it was way higher than that. So, you know, the, the, the bulk is being done by these wild insects that nobody looks after at all, that we just assume are going to turn up. And, and obviously the worrying thing is that they're not anymore. 
So let's let's try to put a um, a positive um, perspective on some of this. There are some things we've already talked about having gardens if you're living in the cities. I mean, they're, they're positive, potentially positive impacts. But if you're an individual landowner, I mean, what are the kinds of behaviors that are most promising to have the positive impacts we look for? Uh, well, so just to, just to go back to the gardening thing, I mean, actually, I, although we've talked about it briefly, um, and gardens on average are, are not bad for, for bees and other insects, um, I think there's a huge potential there for them to be much better and for us to do a lot in urban areas to to make them into you know as, as biodiverse as possible because there's not there's not really much of a compromise to be made there you know there's not there's not a big downside to making our gardens and our city parks and so on more insect friendly we're not sacrificing food production or anything like that um uh, it, the only compromise really is we have to persuade people to to maybe accept things looking a bit different you know instead of mown grass tall flowers uh, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, given that the number of people is set to continue, probably the, the, the extent of urbanisation is going to expand globally. Um, it seems like a kind of a, an easy win option to try and promote conservation of, of insect life and biodiversity generally in, in urban areas. And it's something that people are kind of buying into. You know, there's already um, people, you know, tr planting their gardens full of bee friendly flowers, butterfly friendly flowers garden centers market plants with bee logos as one you know pollinator friendly plants and so on so there's a whole industry there springing up and i think it's a bit of an open door that you know it's one of my kind of um you know passions i guess is uh, is trying to promote that uh, as as one way we can help to combat insect declines and it's a nice one because it's something everyone can get involved in or at least everyone that's lucky enough to have a bit of a garden um and, and, you know, it's unlike many of these big kind of doom and gloom environmental stories, you know, climate change or the rainforests on fire in Brazil or whatever, you know, at least with with um, insect declines, you know, pe people can actually do they can plant a lavender in their garden or whatever it might be. And they can see it, you know, within literally within five minutes, you'll see bees sniff it out and start feeding. So, you, you know, people can can feel they're doing something useful and and also it's a kind of way of maybe getting people to reconnect a bit with nature, you know, inviting nature into our cities. So um, I think that's really cool. Um, but the bigger issue is what do we do about the, the, the rest of the world, um, the bits that aren't gardens, when that's a thornier issue. Um, uh, so and we talked a bit about, you know, that there are agri-environment schemes that are available to help farmers make their farms more insect friendly, but thus far they're not, not been hugely successful. Um, it just seems like given, given the fraction of pollination that's done by wild insects, that everybody's interests ought to be aligned in some way for promoting insect diversity, right? I mean, the farmers have a vested interest in doing that, so, you know, let, let's do that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think they have, and uh, I mean, there was, so there was a really interesting paper published, I think it was five years ago, by Richard Pywell and folk from a UK government lab, the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, where they did a big farm-scale experiment where they got farmers to to take out, um, it was either 3% or 8% of their cropped area and set it aside for biodiversity, For most of it went into flower strips. Um, and they looked at the, the economics of the farm and the, and the crop yield they got and so on. Um, and 
and the farmers who took eight percent of their crop land out of production in the first year or two they got a, a slight reduction in yield of course because they were farming less land but after five years the yield was exactly the same it had gone back up to, to the same as it was in in the farms that hadn't taken any land out of production and i thought oh that was really interesting they put it down to a combination of better pollination and better pest control from natural enemies coming out of these these nature areas but if you if you believe that so so with eight percent less land then you're producing just as much crop yeah yeah i mean so it's also worth kind of noting that they they obviously they let the farmers choose which bits to take out and the farmers inevitably chose the least productive bits which is obvious so they weren't losing eight percent to start with in terms of crop yield they were considerably less you know there was the, the crappy sort of corners with poor soil and so on um but i thought that was really i mean you know the the take-home message from that ought to be that every farmer can take eight percent of his land out of production and plant it full of flowers and he won't lose any money at all and it, it, i mean you know whether you can safely extrapolate i don't know but anyway that it would be nice to think you could and certainly it seems seems an avenue we should we should in, investigate more um but it, you know that, that sort of just languishes in a you know proceedings of the Royal Society, no farmers paid any attention to it, no government policy maker seems to have noticed, you know. Um, but but yeah, I think it would be possible to farm in a much more, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cheesy thing to say, but to, to, you need to kind of work with nature rather than, you know, keep trying to kill everything and control everything. Um, and that, that sounds unscientific, but I think the basic idea that, that you know, if you if you trying to grow a crop, it, it's like a vacuum. If you try and kill everything, you know, you try and eradicate all the pests, um, then it, it's not a sensible strategy long term because, it, you know, the pests will evolve resistance. You're wiping out all the natural enemies. You're wiping out the pollinators. It doesn't make sense. And yet that's 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 where we are, it seems. It's uh, so we need, you know, we need a bit of a rethink. Um, uh, but. It's hard to hard to do. Well, Dave, hey, we've been talking now for about an hour and fifteen minutes, and uh, I want to start moving toward wrapping it up. Um, we have a couple of sort of big forward-looking questions here at the end. We'd like to talk over with you, and and one of them is just to to maybe ask you to lay out your vision for what we need to do going forward to actually monitor, you know, in the UK, the US, around the world, and, and actually establish with more certainty what's happening with different species and different groups of insects. And so I guess this is the, you know, imagine you have millions of dollars to spend on designing a study to do this. What what would you do? It's really challenging. And... and... So I, I'm I'm really conflicted as to the best way to 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 monitor insects. There was there was a paper published a few years ago, which suggested that, uh, um, for example, pan trapping um, is probably a, a, one of the better ways you might do it. it. Obviously, it doesn't capture all insects, but it's good for at least flower visiting insects, and it's very easy to do in a standardised way, and it's something that almost anyone can put out pan traps and collect them in again. And as long as you've got the resources to pay for a team of people to identify the contents of the pan trap, um, then that's actually a, a fair, you know, a, relatively speaking, a, a, a cheap and effective standardized trapping system, monitoring system that could be rolled out on quite a big 
scale. Um, we actually tried setting up our own um, citizen science-based pan trapping scheme in the UK a couple of years ago. Um, there are some logistical problems, not least of which is you, you're not allowed to post bottles of alcohol through the post in the UK. <laughs> so Fundamental um, problem for science. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we ended up asking people to post pickle the insects in vinegar because that you, you can put that in the, in the post, but it didn't work as well as alcohol. And we ended no. up with these rather disintegrated insect samples. Um, I think that has potential um, and, it, and it, it offers lots of advantages compared to, to anything else I can really think of. Um, although it obviously doesn't encompass, you know, ground beetles or many other insect groups. Um, but I'm also a bit, a bit uh, worried about lethal trapping. Um, I didn't used to be. I mean, I, you know, an entomologist for a long time have been very gung-ho about you know, for example, the, 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 the German study, which the, the Krefeld study, which showed this... This is the Hallman et al. paper? Yeah, 76% decline over 26 years in German nature reserves. That was based on malaise trapping. And that study collected 50 kilos of insects. Um, so the monitoring itself is contributing, perhaps. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I'm pretty sure the monitoring actually has negligible impact. Um, you know, on the scale of Germany, 50 kilos of insects is probably nothing. But I, 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 I think I'm getting soft in my old age. Um, but I really You're tired of killing rather, insects. Huh? Well, yeah, I think that's basically it. And I also think it kind of sends out the wrong message. Um, you know, if we if we want people to engage with insect conservation, do we really want to tell them to, to stick pan traps and drown a whole bunch of bumblebees and other pollinators <laughs> in the garden? I, I, I'm not sure the knowledge we would gain is actually worth the, the, the you know, that kind of effect it might have on. I don't know. It just the whole thing it doesn't sit well with me anymore. Yeah, it's like, you know, what museums used to go out and kill birds to get them into the trays, right? And, you know, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. We've all had to change and, and the, the world is changing. And I, I think if we want people to, to respect nature more than they currently do um, and to, you know, kind of really live more, you know, tread more gently on the planet, then, then promoting mass trapping of insect schemes is, is maybe some, not the way forward. So if we get get back to the, the sort of grand vision for monitoring, um, what, what would you do in the tropics, right? So we know a lot about Europe and the U.S. How do we figure out what's going on in the tropics? With enormous difficulty. Um, I, no, honestly, I, I don't have a grand vision as to how you could do that. I mean, it's, it's the logistics of it are so intractable. Um, I mean, sure, you could pick a few groups, you know. I mean, the things that do work, um, if, if, you, if you could recruit people local volunteers or pay for it to be done you know you can walk a transect and count butterflies even in the tropics that would be it would be challenging um because obviously there are many more species but it could be done i think it's it's just about viable so you could choose a few a few groups and focus on those and try to use them as an indicator species uh, you know it would be a long long way from ideal um but, but it would be a start. It would be better than the no data at all situation we're in at the moment. You know, I mean, it, it, and, and obviously the sooner we started, the better, um, because, you know, it's, it's like planting a tree. The best time to do it is was 20 years ago, but failing that, do it today, you know. Um, 
and 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 it, it, but it's so difficult to get anyone to fund long-term monitoring because you know it's it's a there's a no interest for for the first decade it doesn't tell you anything you know so i mean our whole funding model doesn't isn't built around long-term research sadly certainly in the uk you can never get grants for more than three years so what about um technological innovations how much is is environmental dna are those approaches being used to to try to at least find out who is where getting the numbers is of course more difficult but is, is that something that's becoming common it, it's certainly as i understand it and it's not you know really my area of expertise but it, it seems to have huge potential but but my understanding is you really need to you know you need to have genotyped your every species that might be in your sample first before you can then search for them um, and obviously for, for, you know, most insects, no one, or, and particularly in, in, in tropical regions, you know, nobody's taken a DNA sample. So until that is done and when there are millions of them to do, that's obviously quite a, quite a challenge. Um, it's been applied in, um, looking at, um, uh, pollinator behavior and, and where they're collecting their food by look, by identifying the sources of pollen that bees are collecting. And that's really nice as a way of looking at uh, quantifying pollination networks. Um, and, and it seems to be, uh, yeah, quite quick and effective. So, so in theory, in the future, I guess, as these things become cheaper and faster, uh, it could be pretty powerful. But so, so as I understand it, no, nobody is going out and looking and collecting flowers and then scraping bee DNA off of those and identifying what's visited them. No, I don't. I, I don't. I doubt. Oh, who knows? I mean, I, I find some of this environmental DNA stuff, it blows my mind. That, I know. You know. The idea that you can take a little water sample from a pond and detect whether there's a newt somewhere in that pond, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Really, you know, is, is yeah. there so much newt DNA just sloshing around? Right? <laughs> it's everywhere. But, uh, um, but yeah, theoretically, I guess that, that kind of approach might, might work wonders in the future if the if there's anything left to monitor by the time we get that far. So Dave, we, we really appreciate you know, your, the conversation. Um, I wish the topic was a little bit more, uh, exciting. Uh, not that it's not exciting, but, uh, to be, to be depressed is never where we want to leave the audience. So here's your opportunity to, um, inspire us in any way you want. The last question we ask our guest is what did we not give you the chance to say, um, regarding conservation, regarding your own research, ways forward, anything you'd like to say? I I'd like to say two things, if that's all right. Uh, just like I started off with, uh, uh Tooth, <laughs> tooth. Uh, the so one of them I've already said, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's really important that people can get involved. Um, you know, they the the plant a flower, stop using pesticides in your garden, make a compost heap, dig a pond. There's there's reams of information out there about how people can can make their own little patch insect friendly, and it's really rewarding and fun. And if everybody did it, it would help. Um, but big big picture, I I'm I'm quite inclined to think we need to to try somehow to completely change the way we grow food and, and free up huge amounts of land for rewilding projects. Um, you know, the, the E.O. Wilson half-earth approach. Um, actually, we, we have this a food production system at the moment, which is completely bonkers. It does enormous environmental damage. It contributes massively to climate change, soil erosion, biodiversity collapse. And we throw away a third of the produce that we grow in the world. We feed way too much to animals. We eat too much meat. The whole system's crazily inefficient. And if you, if you, if you actually could somehow coordinate a redesign of our food production system, you could, you could feed the world easily with a small proportion of the existing farmland and turn over vast tracts to nature. And that's what I'd really, really love to see. 
of course, you know, it's pie in the sky, but I, it, theoretically it's possible. And if we're really going to, you know, save the planet so that future generations get to appreciate this amazing biodiversity that we have, then, then we have to think big. And I, I, I'd love to see us somehow finding a way down that route. I'm inspired. Yeah. yeah, that was inspiring. That was good. That was a great way to end. <laughs> it is possible. It's difficult, but it is possible. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. To support the podcast, please make a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Patrons get access to awesome perks like video recordings and full uncut audio recordings of the interviews. They also get early access to show notes and our Meet the Scientist interviews, where guests talk about their scientific heroes and their non-scientific hobbies. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our most dedicated patrons. Thanks to Gilbert Miller, Carol Woods, Stephen Ferguson, and Cameron Gallimbor for your patronage. Also, if you haven't checked it out yet, we encourage you to join our listener group on Facebook. It's a place where you can discuss the episode with other fans, create memes, and interact with the Big Biology team. We have links to the group in the episode description, or just search Big Biology Listener Group on Facebook. If you're looking for even more Big Biology content, and who wouldn't, you should check out our playlists on Spotify. We're grouping together episodes by topic and organizing them into theme playlists. Our first playlist is all about evolution. We'll have a link to the playlist in the episode description, and we hope you check it out. On our next episode, we talk to Rob Raguso, professor of biology at Cornell University. Rob studies coevolution between insects and plants, and we talk with him about the crazy outcomes from coevolutionary dynamics, as well as the roles that coevolution plays in generating ecosystem services. Competing for bats drove agaves to this kind of, you know, almost suicidal production of, 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 of giant candelabras of flowers. And because they're desert plants, right, um, and they're cam plants, they can only do photosynthesis, they can only like fix carbon at night, they can't grow very fast. They're limited by their form of photosynthesis and by the severity of the climate in which they live. You know, so basically they've, they've been driven to be like salmon, where they can only afford one explosive reproductive, you know, bout and then they die. Thanks to Matt Boyce and Ruth Demery for producing this episode. Jordan Greer, Ajinkia Dahaki, and Dana Baxter manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. As always, Steve Lane manages the website. And thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear. <laughs>